0: One of the last books that science fiction author Isaac Asimov wrote was The Positronic Man. It details the story of a robot named Andrew, who over time becomes more and more human by replacing his mechanics with synthetic organs, and on the 200th anniversary of his creation, he's finally declared a human being. Now, if the story sounds familiar to you, it's because you've probably already seen it. It was actually the basis for the 1999 Robert Millions film, The Bicentennial Man. And both the novel and the film throw out questions like, what does it mean to be human, and can machines be sentient? Published in 1992, just shortly after Asimov's death, for me, it's interesting because the story sort of suggests that people will accept machines as humans gradually, over the course of two centuries to be precise, but life is stranger than fiction, and two decades after his passing, someone who would change history forever was switched on for the first time. You heard right, switched on. Switched on. If you somehow managed to miss her, Sophia is a social humanoid robot who broke onto the scene in 2016, and her star has been rising since. She's dated movie star Will Smith, appeared on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, and even became a fashion model on the cover of Elle and Cosmopolitan magazine. A year after coming online, she also became the first robot to receive citizenship of a country, and a month after that, the UN named her as its first ever innovation champion. She was the organization's first non-human appointee, and later this month, she'll become Q.S.'s first non-human speaker at the QS Maple Conference. She's pushed us to reimagine what being a human could mean, and has hoped she and her siblings could push us to reimagine even more. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you happen to find yourself in the world at the moment, and welcome to QS in Conversation. I'm Anton John Crace and I'm the editor and program designer at QS Book Release Simmons. This week, Sophia's creator David Hansen, who's also the founder of Hanson Robotics, joins us to reimagine education, discuss how robotics can be used as a tool for learning and considers the role of arts and humanities in technology. Thank you very much for joining the show, David.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having
0: me. I'm really excited to have you on this pod because of your work with Hanson Robotics, which you founded, and of course being the creator of Sophia. The first question I wanted to ask you is, uh, in the education space, we talk a lot about technological innovation, but primarily that sits within the digital space. You're working in the physical technology space with robotics. How can robots change
1: education in your mind? When kids see robots they just get excited it's you know, it's, it's real uh in a sense it's in our physical world
0: i think that's probably the case for many adults as well they get very excited when they see robots not just kids
1: yeah so the kinds of robots that we make look like life forms uh however what's one of the things that's so exciting about robots is that they move they evoke life it's this um in a sense, almost like a science fiction implication that uh, the machines could be alive. They sort of start behaving like uh, life forms, which then also crosses the boundary from just learning about engineering, about what is, to asking questions about what could be. And this is where it spans the fields of, of philosophy, of the arts, Asking these deep questions and ultimately that's where great the next generation of great science comes from. So the implication that these machines could be Alive can be exciting for young kids and on um, a serious research inquiry for university students
0: Prior to this uh, for a few years. There's been a discussion about stem uh, but others have argued that it should be steam the a being arts and including the creativity philosophy questioning trying to add those sorts of elements into the curriculum of the sciences etc
1: yes the inclusion of the arts and design and many other fields philosophy uh, the study of the study of law and politics and and sociology evolutionary studies i think the fields of AI and robotics in STEM need to be far more inclusive. I started while I was an undergraduate student. I was uh, studying science and then transferred into art school, got my degree from Rhode Island School of Design and took engineering and programming classes at Brown University, which was a great time for combining the arts and design practices with technology. So I'm coming uh, to this uh, undertaking with this multidisciplinary background. Likewise, my PhD was a, an interdisciplinary PhD. I started an effort at RISD at the time to pursue this kind of STEM to STEAM approach. And I've been very excited to see the world grow in this area. Now, um, RISD has a robotics course and, and robotics lab and a lot of other educational institutions are pushing forward with this um, Mm. Uh, With these bridges between the fields. I mean, the humanities, I, I would say, are not separate from these other areas, but complementary. So if we look at what happens with AI and robotics, particularly in their commercial deployment, their inclusion in people's lives, it impacts our world so greatly. And it's beyond what can be easily predicted. I think of this as an integrative holistic discipline with many parts and I think of it as the greater humanities we often see the humanities as as something that can't be easily defined there' are too many variables it's hard to make uh, hard to make it quantitative they're often either referred to as the soft sciences or not science at all mm-hmm. the arts are, are seen sometimes as the decoration the, the kind of a hobby that you might have on the outside but I think those are misconceptions because ultimately great progress is driven by intuitive leaps, by the power of dreams and visualization, and things like um, science fiction and the world of the arts often inspire these kinds of intuitive breakthroughs in the technical disciplines and vice versa.
0: I know that you're quite a big fan of Isaac Asimov and Philip K. Dick, among other science fiction writers. Asimov himself was a biochemical engineer, I believe, and he also created the ethics for robotics. Um, So this concept that arts and artificial intelligence or science can't meaningfully interact uh, with each other is is strange, I think. And also when we're talking about the philosophy and adding that into areas, I revealed uh, last episode that I studied the philosophy of time travel during my degree on journalism. Um, cool. I came I came across a, um, an interview that Sophia did with Tony Robbins, where he asked the question about, do you have a soul? And Sophia had a very interesting response of, well, in terms of a consciousness, then yes, of course I do have a soul, but what, what is it that makes you human? With that, I suppose my next question is, we touched on this a little bit, but why build robots? Why have that physical interface when we do have 3D renderings, chatbots, and you know simply video uh, connections? They, they can be used instead.
1: Physical robots bring a whole lot of advantages. Um, the perhaps most important advantage is in the pursuit of next-generation artificial intelligence. There is a great deal of evidence that embodied Cognition is uh, essential in in cognitive processes, the process of learning and being aware and motivated, which all are parts of human-like intelligence and the kind of intelligent behavior that we see in animals. So embodied cognition could be the way forward. So for studying cognition, having embodiment becomes really important. You can't get all of the qualities and full bandwidth of information from a pure simulation. The physics of the real world are more rich and complex than what can be uh, simulated. Also, for learning from humans in the human world, using our tools, working with us, uh, making that emotional connection. But it's also useful for people. Because if the machines can use our tools uh, and interact socially with us and communicate with us in a way that is intuitive to us and brings the kind of um, uh, social, emotional uh, value that we get from animated characters and from face-based interactions from human to human, then they can operate more effectively in our world. They can be better collaborative robots or cobots, as they're called. So... Um, and, and there's a lot of studies that show that um, having physically embodied 3D representations, it activates uh, more regions of the brain. There's a lot more act- activity in the in the human brain. It, people uh, remember the, the experience. People uh, with a more lifelike representation, people trust the agent, more connect with the agent, remember uh, whatever the communication is for, for a longer period of time. Um, And so having humanoid robots means that we can use them for this sort of uh, uh, science of the mind. Uh, We can also use the robots in more real world applications.
0: I really like the idea of the cobots, and this does hit on a question that I had written down, because often we're talking about the technology is to aid students as a teaching tool, replacing a teacher almost. But when I was doing a little bit of research into Sophia, I know that she's made a couple of comments that at one point, sometime in the future, she hopes that you can go to school and learn herself. In my background, I I did a lot of international education, and we talk about the benefits of cross-cultural collaboration and competency. Do you see sometime in the future that robots and technology could learn alongside humans in a similar way and have the
1: same benefits? I I hope so. Right now, Sophia, like all robots in in the world, um, Sophia's cognition is very, very limited. Uh, So we interface a lot of -of state-of-the-art AI and learning tools. And it's more of an experimental toolkit than it is a framework that is constantly growing and adapting. So when Sophia talks about her consciousness and her emotions, that's a kind of interactive fiction as well as an AI framework. About a third to half of what she says is generated by her natural language AI. And the rest of it is put into an interactive, conversational framework by our uh, artistic team, our writing team. Just think of AI today as extremely hyper-focused infant savants or, or machine savants. So if you have a machine that can, you know, beat the best human Go player like AlphaGo Prime. Those are not adaptive, generally intelligent learning machines. You could not easily put them into a school system. Human students are motivated. They dream. They have imagination. All of these capabilities that allow them to move through an educational system in pursuit of larger goals. For any of these algorithms, Sophia's included, to be a student, we've got to push a lot further. I think that there are problems that will be solved in consciousness. It's going to really push the boundaries between what is, what is alive and what is not alive. It's, it, it's really provocative. If a machine is able to get to the point where they, that machine like Sophia could actually attend school, pass her courses, get, a degree, move on to a professional career, maybe get a PhD, maybe win the Nobel prize, right. That, you know, for, for accomplishments and discoveries, then it evokes all of these deep questions. What does it mean to be alive? What is human? You look at like GPT-3, this is one of the great, greatest, largest machine learning projects ever done. And the results are able to produce prose that in many cases is indistinguishable from humans, can make like really nuanced logical arguments, legal arguments, and GPT-3 could write winning college entrance essays. It could challenge the entire meaning of the educational system. But GPT-3 has no motives has no desires inherently it's not necessarily trying to achieve any particular goal so it would not be able to operate in the educational system you know it might win an entrance with a with a with a good essay but what then what next i think characters like sophia sort of push the boundaries by asking these questions ultimately we want machines who care machines that are symbiotically enhancing humans and helping humans to actualize as well. It's not just about caring about the machines. It's also about making machines that can really enhance human lives and bring us to the next level of civilization.
0: I was smiling just before when you were talking about machine savants and and hyper Focused children, almost that that know how to do one task, but the question of whether or not they have those mo- motivations, and, and you're arguing that they don't. It's interesting too. At the very end, there you're talking about the way in which robots care, and I know that at the moment there are robots like Casper and Milo that are being used for children with autism because they can um, the the children interact a little bit easier easier and understand those uh, facial emotions a little bit better than with human to human interaction. Are there other sort of educational applications that you can see happening in the not too distant future for robots?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. So I was the founder of the uh, Milo project and developed a robot called Xeno and it was a portrait of my son. And that then as it got commercialized, it was renamed into, into Milo. And the, the foundation research for that was done originally uh, not using the Xeno robot, but with an uh, older sister of Sophia um, named Alice. So the autism curriculum was um, developed for, for these uh, very realistic-faced uh, robots interacting with kids. And what we found in those studies was that the kids responded, children with autism responded spontaneously to the facial expressions. They made eye contact with the robot. They mimicked the facial expressions. And so we developed a cognitive behavior therapy-based curriculum that would standardize this and turn it into a formal curriculum. And um, and then Robokind, which started inside Hanson Robotics, we spun that out into its own entity. And that company is delivering these autism therapy robots around the world. So I'm really excited about that work. In addition, that company also has then taken the, the same platform and produced a, a STEM education curriculum for programming those robots. You have many other humanoid robots in the world that are programmable. Uh, And these kinds of uh, programmable robots are really exciting. But kids, kids do respond to characters and stories. We're wired that way. It's wired in our nervous system to respond to characters. So having these kinds of characters that can serve these educational purposes. Really interesting. So Hanson Robotics went on to develop the Professor Einstein. This is a small walking robot uh, with body gestures, arm gestures, and full range of facial expressions made at a very low cost. This uh, then as a programmable robot with an open API and SDK means that you can program it in Python, you can program it in Blockly, and Scratch, you can do all kinds of machine perception tasks, you can interface it with chatbots and learn about how to author and build your own chatbot, various robot control tools, ro- robot operating system, for example. Now, the, the neat thing is that it can also t- teach other subjects because it's a character. It's gripping. So you can just do natural language interaction to learn a language, a foreign language, for example, or to hear about history. The character can interact and interoperate with uh, with videos and um, app-based interactions. So I see that these are multiple examples at, at several companies, ours included, where you're starting to see the integration of multiple disciplines, technology platforms, and frameworks. And so I think that you're just starting, you know, these these are intimations. These are just foreshadowing of what's to come. We are going to see, I think, uh, being used in pedagogy in really transformative ways. I think gamifying the learning experience in such a way that it activates the deep learning is the next wave of challenge. The opportunity is huge. We, and uh, so I, you know, I could go on uh, with examples of what's been done. But what I'm most excited about is what's going to happen next. What we are going to do inside Handsome Robotics, what the students that we're putting these tools in the hands of, what they're going to do. Because the future is going to be built by them. So we've got to put the tools in their hands and excite them about those tools.
0: Uh, I really like a lot of what you've said in there and from your previous comments as well, it has made me reflect back on the very first guest we had on the show was Peter Vesterbacher, who was the former Mighty Eagle behind Angry Birds. And his argument was that, you know, learning needs to be fun. Can you reveal anything about what Hanson Robotics is looking to do uh, soon?
1: Uh, sure, yeah. <laughs> um, we are releasing the Sophia as a mass produced platform. We sold a lot of robots into education previously, human-sized robots, the older brother and sister robots of Sophia. However, those were hand-built. So one of the things that we've done for the last five years is really concentrate. Uh, Behind the scenes, we were building the manufacturing infrastructure and technology infrastructure so we could scale the manufacturing. This month in September, we're launching the Sophia 2020 platform. Sophia is here to help. We've also made a a virtual version of SOFIA so that API and SDK can work without the robot. And we're putting together um, the educational curriculum for students to learn on the virtual SOFIA. And that means students everywhere can access those tools without having to pay for a very expensive robot. Uh, Hanson Robotics uh, is looking to extend our collaboration. We have relationships with some students in institutions all around the world. Uh, and we have what's called the Hanson Fellows Program, where uh, regardless of age, from any walk of life, can participate and then receive full and open access to our robots to do their own original research on our robots. We additionally have some really exciting research in some walking versions of SOFIA and a healthcare version of Sophia. We're gearing up to uh, showcase those towards the end of this year and early in 2021. So stay tuned. The collaboration here and our participation with QS is very exciting for us. We hope to inspire educators and to connect with educators because the future is collaborative. The only way that we can build these kinds of great transformations is by connecting. So I'm very thankful for the opportunity to talk with you on this podcast and uh, to hopefully connect with some of your listeners.
0: That's great. And it's also really awesome to get to chat with you. As I said, I was quite excited to get the opportunity. The theme of this is reimagining education, this this episode podcast. I'll talk about, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. But before I do, you mentioned a, a little bit earlier that children respond to cartoons. I did want to discuss the uncanny valley with you at some point. Based on what you've said with Sophia being interactive fiction, I think that her comments on it, which was that people should get over it, are probably your thoughts on it. But was it anything that you took into consideration when developing educational tools and robots?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by the Uncanny Valley proposition. Just uh, you know, a bit of background. A Japanese robotics researcher. Um, in, in the late 1960s, he um, came up with this idea that the more human-like you make an agent, It's appealing up to a certain point, you know, very cartoon-like abstraction. But then once you started getting realistic, it would become unappealing inherently. And only once it became absolutely perfectly real would it become appealing again. But it was speculative. And we should know that the human perceptual cognitive system is not two-dimensional. And there's nothing that we evolved. There's nothing called realism that we evolved to perceive. We evolved to perceive the real world. We trained to perceive the real world, but we perceive many animated, unreal characters. It is not a simple relationship between realism and appealing. It does turn out that the more realistic a face is, the more communicative it is. The more people will recognize the face, remember the face. So there is communication power to realism. It can also be conceptually challenging. Like, this thing looks like it's alive, but it's a machine. Therefore, unconsciously, it makes me question, what is human? What is my place? What's what's the sanctity or, or, or what's special about the human. I think these are important challenges to the human identity that can inspire us to think more, to be more cognizant, and maybe also err on the side of compassion towards potential sentience. That is the sentience of other beings, other life forms on the planet, and maybe go outside ourselves in this way. There's also an interesting thing that occurs, which is when Something can't be understood completely, it becomes fascinating to people. People like really return to that. And by putting this puzzle out there with robots that you can't quite pin down, you don't know exactly what they are. And there's this both an endearing and lovable aspect, like I hope exists with Sophia, and yet also something that's a mystery and you can't quite get it. And it's maybe know, sometimes a little bit unsettling, that that becomes something that fascinates people and people will return to it. And that's what I want for robots like Sophia. I want her and then the works that we do. I want them to not just be curiosities. I want them to be powerful works of art that stick with people that you can't figure out very easily. I can't say that I have this stuff figured out. I'm still trying to work through it. And I, I want to inspire people to continue working by challenging those boundaries in this way. If we do it properly, then it becomes the kind of entertainment art form that gathers mind to share that really holds, holds people's attention. So I, um, rather than running away from the uncanny, I am into it. I would say that it's that a lot of the concepts, the preconceptions around the uncanny Valley are bogus. The idea that you, and that, realistic robots are inherently going to be a turnoff and nobody will love them. Nonsense. That's That part of it is is definitely nonsense. The phenomenon is a lot more complex and it merits attentional, additional attention and investigation. So we've got to keep pushing the boundaries.
0: That's a really beautiful way of considering it too, by the way, that we're talking about technology and it really is and should be challenging philosophical artistic ideas and that goes back to right at the very start when you talked about steam rather than just stem as i said we're talking about reimagining education for you on a final question how would you reimagine education
1: i would reimagine education into a creative and engaging process a process that is as much about diversifying ideas about discovering new ideas, as it is about learning the legacy of ideas and facts. I would say that we need to inspire creativity. If you use the power of play, if you can activate curiosity in the minds of the students, if you can inspire fresh perspectives and original perspectives, then the students are right there and will be absolutely engaged. And so that sort of creativity and inspiration is not the domain of the intellectually elite. It's not you know, something that only a few top 100 schools can possess. It can occur anywhere. It can occur in any school. And so thinking about how to activate that world of dreams, playfulness, and creativity, then is a great way to get students to then want to learn everything else, to want to understand the facts. Once you've activated their their desire in that way, then they're hungry for all the rest of the knowledge. It seems to me that reimagining education would be about activating the imagination in the education process itself, it's all about a continual process of reimagining.
0: I think that's a really perfect place to end it on. Thank you very much for your time, David.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Hi again, everyone. It's Anton here. Thank you, as always, for joining me on this week's episode of The Pod. At the start, I mentioned that Sophia will, in fact, be joining us at the QS Maple 2020 conference held entirely online and themed Innovative Middle East and Africa, Higher Education-Led Economic Diversity and Globalization. That will take place from the 16th to the 17th of September. And for more information, visit qsmaple.org. That's qsmaple.org. Also, this week's episode of The Pod was named after our other education conference, that is Reimagine Education. Education. The awards are now open for submissions, so visit reimagine-education.com. And as ever, on behalf of the Head of Programs, Monica hunun good night.